Our first Bible reading today is from John 13, from verses 31 to 14, verse 4. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to pre prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And now from Acts 1, verses 1 to 11. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about, for John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, 
Why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jeanette. The topic of the sermon, the title of the sermon, as you can see up there, is Why Christ Ascended. This coming Thursday, we we celebrate what is possibly the least remembered of all our Christian feast days. Perhaps one of the reasons for that is that this day always falls on a Thursday rather than on a Sunday. Now in former years, of course, this day was celebrated in many so-called Christian countries. During the Middle Ages, I read somewhere in many places on this festive day, a cross would be pulled up by a rope into the high ceiling of the church during the reading of the relevant scriptures to symbolize Christ's being lifted up from the earth. In some parts of the Netherlands, I am told, on this day, people would get up very early in the morning and they would go and walk barefoot out in the fields. Rather cold, I think. Doutrappen, as it was called, literally treading the dew. And while the origins of this custom are somewhat shrouded in obscurity, it suggested that perhaps it was to remind them of Christ and his disciples walking for the very last time to the Mount of Olives. Again, in the Netherlands and perhaps in other countries as well, the day was and still mostly is a public holiday, though it has never, as far as I'm aware, been a holiday here in Australia. But for us Christians, it will always remain a special day. For coming Thursday will be exactly 40 days after Easter Sunday, and therefore the day on which Christ bodily returned to heaven. Just as the children of Israel wandered through the desert for 40 years before they were able to enter into the promised land, so our Lord remained on earth for 40 days after his resurrection, until Ascension Day, the day on which his ministry on earth came to an end. So Christ's ascension into heaven is also what I want to talk about this morning. And yes, I know it's an event which is mentioned in but a few verses in our Bibles, in only three verses really in our reading just now from Acts, and even fewer than that, what we didn't read at the end of Luke's Gospel. But that does not mean that it is not an event which is significant or important. It is and remains one of the basic tenets of our Christian faith. It is mentioned in all our ecumenical creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed and the Nicene. And in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 18, it devotes no less than four questions and answers to this subject. And so I too want to speak about Christ's ascension this morning. 
and to see the reasons why this event is so important. I want to concentrate especially on that why. Why on the 40th day after his resurrection did our Lord return to, did he ascend into heaven? The first reason, I believe, is because it clearly presented a definite end to his earthly mission. All other human beings lived their lives, as it were, between two very clear bookends. There is a very definite beginning and a very definite end to our earthly lives. We are born and we die. But for Jesus, of course, it was different. Oh yes, he too was born in a stable in Bethlehem. We remember that every Christmas. And he too died, as we remember each year on Good Friday. But for our Lord, these two milestones were neither the beginning nor the end. For before he was conceived, he already existed. He never did not exist. From all eternity, he was, he is, God the Son. Before Abram was, I am, he once said to some of his detractors. And after his death, he was resurrected. And for 40 days after, he remained here on earth. Oh yes, to be sure, we know that his, his resurrection body was already different. He appeared and disappeared at will. And at times, even his followers did not recognize him until, they, until he let them. But he was still here on earth, wasn't he? Now, I guess he, he could have disappeared quietly back to heaven. But then his disciples would always have kept wondering what had happened. For that was certainly not what all of them expected. Some still hoped that he would establish his kingdom here on earth, as we read at the start of that second reading. And so it was very important that Christ's mission on earth was clearly seen to have come to a definite end. Christ's earthly mission was now complete. It had come to a definite close, and it was by his ascension that he made that very clear to his disciples. They saw him depart with their very own eyes. And the method used here by our Lord is, is not of ultimate importance. Sometimes, these days, the ascension is ridiculed. Because people say that we now know that, that heaven is not up there, not that far above the earth, at least not in any physical dimension. Like many others, the late liberal Anglican Bishop of Woolwich, John Robinson, who's main claim to notoriety came from writing a book titled What I Cannot Believe and he once stated that he had calculated that even if Christ had left the earth at the speed of light he would still now only be floating somewhere in the Milky Way surely missed the point completely Christ simply employed as his method what was in his days here on earth a universally held belief not because it was scientifically accurate we now believe that from a physical point of view it isn't. But to make sure that his followers would be left in no doubt whatsoever that his earthly mission was now finished 
and that he was now returning to the place from whence he had come. On that first ascension day, our Lord ascended. He returned to heaven, and there, by the way, he received a magnificent reception. Jesus' departure from the earth may have been very low-key, but he ascended until hidden by a cloud, we are told, leaving his followers staring up into the heavens. But if his disciples had only been able to look behind that cloud, as it were, the scene they would have witnessed would have been totally different. For his reception back in heaven was anything but low-key. You can read about that already in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13, where the Old Testament prophet foresees this in one of his visions. And I quote, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All people, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed, we read there. And in Ephesians 1, Paul writes that God the Father, and again I quote, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named. And he put all things under his feet. When Christ returned to heaven, he was reinstated, as it were, into all his former power, into all his former glory. And he retains that power and that glory now. You know, I think that's important to remember. Sadly, most people, and sometimes I think even some Christians, do not nearly treat our Lord with the respect he deserves. They seem to regard him as, as just another human being, and yes, so he is. Christ did ascend bodily into heaven, and ever since the incarnation, he has remained, to use the theological terminology, one person with two natures. At the same time, human and divine. And that is very important because that means that he is and, and will always remain one of us. The firstborn among many brethren. That now that Christ has ascended, we have, as the Catechism somewhere puts it, we have our flesh in heaven. He is and remains man. But he is also God the Son. And he is certainly, certainly to be honored and worshipped as such. In Revelation chapter 1, we read how John the Apostle, who while he was here on earth, was the closest friend of our Lord, is met by the risen and glorified Christ in a vision. And notice the words John uses. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. And it's surely significant that this is the same description as that used by Daniel. And in fact, of course, one that was often used by our Lord when he spoke of himself in the Gospels. John sees Jesus glorified. And what is John's reaction? Does he say, hi Jesus, how wonderful it is to see you again? No, he doesn't, does he? He says, but when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Even John, 
John who was here on earth, Jesus' confidant, Jesus' closest disciple, the same John who called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, was nevertheless in deadly awe of his now exalted Lord. The second reason why Christ ascended to heaven we find in our first reading. In the words of our Lord himself in John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Our Lord ascended to heaven to prepare a place for us. In my Father's house are many rooms. The Greek can also mean abodes. It can also mean mansions. I don't think the precise meaning is particularly important. People have asked me at times what heaven is like. But I don't think that that is a question that I or, or anyone else can answer. Because the Bible doesn't really tell us, does it? Instead, it provides us with a number of sometimes perhaps even seemingly contradictory pictures. In Revelation, for instance, we read about a beautiful garden, reminiscent of paradise, but also about a beautiful city, a golden city, the heavenly Jerusalem, and also about a new earth to which the heavenly Jerusalem descends. Jesus himself at times spoke of heaven by using the picture of a, a wonderful feast often a, a wedding banquet. Each one a picture of beauty and festivity, of blessedness and joyfulness, of feasting and laughter. Each one seeking to express in human terms something wonderful, but each falling far short, I believe, of the reality which will be ever so much better. A place and a state of such bliss as our minds cannot presently grasp, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't really imagine what heaven will be like, because it will be so much more wonderful than our human minds can now comprehend. I think C.S. Lewis somewhere uses the illustration of a, a little boy who thinks it's the greatest bliss he can imagine when he's allowed to play in a puddle. I think my youngest grandson's one of those. Until one day his parents take him to the seashore. We simply cannot comprehend what we, will have, ne what we have never yet experienced until we do. What's heaven like? I do not know. And neither will anyone else before they get there. But one thing I do know, Jesus will be there. And that is also the most important. The story is told of a, a Christian doctor who was called to the bedside of a dying patient. The patient rather anxiously asked him, Doctor, what will heaven be like? The doctor answered, I don't know. And I don't think to know is all that important. But listen, do you hear that scratching at the door of your bedroom? That's my dog. I brought him here with me. Now he has no idea what's here in this room. 
but he does know that I am in here. And for him, that's by far the most important. For my dog, just to know that is more than enough. What will heaven be like? We don't know. But we do know that in heaven we will be with Jesus, with the one who loves us above all, who gave his very life so that we can be with him, with the one we should love, we will love above all. In Hebrews 2 verse 10, our Lord is called the author of our salvation. The Greek word used there is the word agagos, and it can also be translated as pioneer or trailblazer. Jesus has gone before. He has blazed our trail to heaven. And William Barclay, in his commentary on this verse, writes this. If a ship is foundering on the rocks and the only way to save the crew and passengers is for someone to swim ashore with a line and secure it to a tree or a rock so that others may gain the safety of the beach, the one who swims with the line is the Agagos. He did a deed so that others may follow. Jesus is our Agagos, as we read in our reading. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Christ, through his death and resurrection, blazed the trail so that we may follow. And when we get there, whenever and wherever heaven is, the most important thing is that there we will be forever united with him. The third reason, the third answer to our question, why did Christ ascend into heaven, is that he did so to become our intercessor. Christ returned to heaven to be our intercessor. There is a passage in the Old Testament, in Exodus 33, which is said just after the incident with the golden calf. I'm sure most of you know that story. How Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God. And while he was gone, the people got sick of waiting. And so they began to pester Aaron, Moses' brother. And eventually they got him to make a golden calf. And, and they proclaimed that to be their God. And they began to worship it. And when Moses got back, got back, he was terribly, terribly angry. Yes, but God was even more angry. Because the Israelite had sinned against him. And so God decides to punish his people. And he did. Thousands died by the sword, we read, and from sickness. But that was not all. For then God also decided that he no longer wanted to lead his people. And so he said to Moses, I will send you an angel. He will lead you into the promised land. But my presence will no longer go with you. Because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. That's what God had said to Moses. And so Moses puts up a tent some distance from the Israelite encampment. Now, this happened before the tabernacle was built. But Moses' tent was, was like the tent, like the tabernacle afterwards. This tent, too, was called a tent of meeting. Because it was a place where Moses could meet with God, where he could come into God's presence to plead with the Lord, to intercede 
on the people's behalf to be their intercessor. And so Moses does. He walks out of the camp and he enters this tent. And as soon as he does so, the pillar of cloud, and we may well wonder if it was just a coincidence that it was a cloud which in the end hid Jesus. That cloud which, which symbolized the presence of God came down and stayed at the entrance of that tent while the Lord spoke with Moses. While Moses interceded with God on behalf of his sinful people. And in doing so, Moses was a type of Jesus. He was already a symbol of Christ. For Christ too is our intercessor, who went on our behalf, not into an earthly tent, but into the heavenly tent, the heavenly tabernacle. And the book of Hebrews, of course, elaborates this in the greatest detail. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation we read in Hebrews 9, verse 11, for instance. And in fact, this whole section of Hebrews, chapters 8 through to 10, read it when you get home, deals with Christ's heavenly intercession. It reminds us of the role of the high priest in the Old Testament who went into the tabernacle bearing the blood of bulls and goats in order to intercede with God on behalf of his sinful but chosen people. And it compares this with Christ, our great high priest, who did not come with the blood of animals, but with his own blood, with his own sacrifice on the cross on our behalf before the Father. That sacrifice to which all those Old Testament sacrifices we're already pointing forward, of which they too were already types and symbols, and which empowers him to be the true mediator, the true and only intercessor on our behalf with God the Father. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence, as Hebrew 9.24 puts it. And in Romans 8, verse 34, Paul writes this, that Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus is in heaven right now interceding for us, pleading with God the Father on our behalf, just like Moses pleaded for his sinful people as our mediator, standing between us and God. Yes, to stand between us and God, that too is why Jesus ascended into heaven. That too is the significance of the ascension. Do we know that? You know, sometimes I think we present-day Christians are but so little aware of that. It has so little meaning for us. Perhaps that because in our society, intercession really is so seldom necessary. When we want to speak with someone, we generally just go and make an appointment, don't we? Well, you can't do that with God. Our sins will simply not allow that. We cannot just come into his holy presence. He will not hear us. We have no access to him, except if we come to him through our only true intercessor, our great high priest, who gave himself for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is now sitting at God's right hand. Again, we confess it in our creeds and is seated at the right hand of God the Father 
Christ sits at God's right hand and there he continually intercedes for us. There he pleads on our behalf. That too is part, perhaps the most important part, of the why of his ascension. Do we realize just how significant that is? That it is only the only reason why God will hear us? story is told how one day a soldier entered the office of President Abraham Lincoln and sat down together with about 50 other people because he wanted to see him. While he was waiting, a little boy came in and he noticed this man because he was dressed as a soldier. And he took the boy's fancy and, and so the boy started talking to him and asked him all sorts of questions. And the man told him about the war and the Civil War and, and various anecdotes and the, and the boy loved it. But by then it was late in the afternoon and, and the secretary came out and, and said, I'm sorry, but the president cannot see anyone else today. You'd better come back tomorrow. And so the soldier got up and, and made to go. But the little boy asked what it was he had wanted. And, and so the soldier said to the boy, I too had hoped to see the president. And the boy said, the president? Oh, you mean my father? Don't go, I'll get you in. The boy disappeared while the soldier waited and after some time the secretary came out again and, and said to the soldier, the president will see you now. The soldier did get in. Why? Because the son got him in. Because the president's son interceded and so it is also with us and with Jesus. God's son has gone back to heaven to be our intercessor with God the Father. And we can come to God only through him. But when we do come through him, we may be sure that the Father will hear us. And there, of course, we find a very important difference with Moses. When Moses went to the tent of meeting, we read in Exodus 33, all the Israelites stood at the entrances to their tents. And you can imagine sort of them standing there anxiously looking after Moses because the outcome was to them by no means sure. Will he succeed? Will God hear him? Will God take pity on us, his sinful people? But when Jesus entered into the heavenly tabernacle, there was no doubt about the outcome whatsoever. Again, to quote from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that is to say when Jesus, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Perfect. When Jesus ascended into heaven, when he entered into the heavenly tabernacle, there was no doubt about the outcome whatsoever. Oh yes, I know, we read that the disciples too were, were staring after him. They too were, were looking up into heaven. A bit like the Israelites standing there outside their tents, staring after Moses. And it took two angels to tell them to stop looking up and to get on with their earthly business. 
But when they did, they did so in full assurance. And they returned to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem with great joy, Luke tells us, because they knew that Jesus' work on earth was now over and that the price for their sins had been paid and that therefore Christ's intercession with God on their behalf, on our behalf, would never, never fail. One more thing about Christ's ascension into heaven, and that is that one day he will return again from heaven. Just like Moses returned from the tent after speaking with God, so too will Jesus. We don't know when that will be either, because the Bible, again, does not tell us. Jesus did not. As a human being, he said, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. He once told his disciples, but though we do not know when, we know that Christ will return. As the angels also told the disciples, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. One day he is coming back in the same way as he went, on the clouds of heaven. But that time there will not just be two angels. No, there will be thousands upon thousands. For that time when Christ returns and all the earth will see him in all his power and all his glory. And on that day his enemies, those who oppose him now, will be made his footstool. But on that day also, he will take his own and take them with him so that they too might be with him in heaven. Someone asked me just a few days ago, what will happen when we die? Will we sleep as it were until Christ returns or will we go straight to heaven? And again, my answer was, we don't really know. Christ said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. But to his disciples, and I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. Again, I believe that to know the exact details is not all that important. Again, it may well be impossible for us, our human minds, to comprehend. We are creatures living in time. God dwells in eternity. With him a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day, as Peter in one of his letters reminds us. The important thing in the end is that, not when, these things will come to pass for us. Meanwhile, meanwhile, let us too get on with our work, just like the disciples. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, Luke tells us at the conclusion of his gospel. And there they waited for the coming of the Holy Spirit, Christ's new representative on earth whom he had promised. And when the Spirit came as he did soon after on Pentecost Sunday, which we will celebrate two weeks from today, they began to tell people everywhere about the things that had happened, how Jesus had come and had lived and had died for their sins, and how he had now returned to glory, and how he is now interceding for us as we await his second coming. And that is what we too are directed to do, 
in the power of that Holy Spirit. We too must get on with our task of passing on the message until, as promised, our ascended Lord will come again. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, it's good to be reminded again that the work of our Lord here on earth had a, a time when he finished. When his, his task was complete. His task here on earth, but not his, his work in heaven. And so we thank you that he is now seated at your right hand, Father, and that he is interceding for us, and that through him we have access to you, our God. We thank you, Lord, for his sacrifice. We thank you that we can call him our brother, our exalted brother. We thank you for the wonderful promise that one day we will be united with him. Thank you through him and in his name. Amen.